You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are continuing our journey through the Psalms, and this is another Psalm. As we saw last week, we looked at Psalm 58, which is one of those challenging, imprecatory Psalms that have some pretty tough material in them, and we are kind of continuing. These two Psalms are are fairly heavy duty in the same way. They are written during that very challenging period of David's life. Let me just pray for the work for the study. Father, we just thank you, Lord, now as we open the living oracles of God. Uh, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, Lord, the wonders and the truths contained within it. In Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. We have seen the Psalms that David wrote when he was on the run from Saul, when he was hiding in the wilderness, when he was hiding in the caves. And this one here, Psalm 59, you can read just the little uh, superscription there at the top. Uh, This gives us the historical setting. This one takes us right back to the beginning, you could say. You remember when Saul's evil intent for David was manifest, and it says the evil spirit from the Lord tormented Saul, and he picked up the spear and threw it at him. You remember that that episode? And then David uh, flees, and it says in 1 Samuel 19, then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him. So he sent his, his guard around, basically, to David's house in order to put him to death in the morning. But, but Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. You imagine the scene there. So this event has just happened. David's fled back to his house, and then he sees his house slowly being surrounded by the royal guard, basically, with the intent that when he comes out, he will be killed. And his wife, as wives always know best as they do, says, you need to get out of here, and... He flees, and we've seen many psalms on the journey. But this is the backdrop to this psalm. And before we even get into it, as we've, sort of, we've done 58, 57, and we've seen these psalms, there's just a few reflections as I've been thinking about some of the things uh, that we have seen in these psalms. Like the majority, we're only up to Psalm 59. Obviously, there's a lot more to go, and there's a lot of change of tone and pace throughout the book. But so far, we have seen a lot of psalms that come from a place where David would seem to be not in a good place. He's either very depressed, he's very scared, he's in bad circumstances, he's uh, fearing for his life. And he expresses that quite vocally and quite in very strong terms in some of these psalms. But yet, at the same time, we also see his express, expressions of unshakable faith in God and his desire to sing praises to God. And these two things go together. And that's what, one of these things that fasc, fascinates me because... You know, what can we take from this? We so often have this impression that Christians are going to have it together all the time. We're going to be this one long living example of what it means to, to know your purpose and just live like that. And those of us who have been Christians any period of time, you know that's just far, far, far from the reality. David here, and in most of these Psalms that we've read so far, we see that is not the place. We're not going to be spiritually up all the time. We could say it's okay not to be okay sometimes. We know our lives are his. That's the confidence we must have. And sometimes we will reflect that truth in the valley, and sometimes we will reflect that truth from the mountaintop. This is the Christian life. This is the pilgrimage we take. But what we must know is that God's love and acceptance of us is identical in both those circumstances, regardless of where you presently are. God's love does not change. And that is one of the things we see David really clinging on to throughout this period of his life. And I feel that's, you know, we all admit it's been a, been a tough year by our standards, and, you know, it's important that we do remember these things as we go through. Now let's look at verse 1. 
He says, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on high away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity. Save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. For no guilt of mine they run and set themselves against me. Arouse yourself to help me and see, you, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity, Selah. They return at evening, they howl like a dog and go around the city, and behold, they belch forth with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, Who hears? But you, O Lord, laugh at them, you scoff at all the nations. So here we have this situation. David describes it quite vividly. He is being hunted once again by his enemies, people who wish him harm. And he does describe again his enemies in quite descriptive ways. Verse 1, he calls them his enemies. He also says, they are those who rise up against me, those who do iniquity. They are men of bloodshed. They set an ambush. They're fierce men, ones who launch an attack. This just, again, builds up here what these, the character of these people and the specific evil intent that they have against David. And again, just drawing another reflection as I thought about these verses, we see this replicated, don't we, so often around the world. We don't like to think about it in this sense, but we do. Man is often man's biggest enemy. And if you look through the history, you know, city against city, empire against empire, nation against nation, people against people, this is the history of mankind. It has been that way ever since the murder of Abel by his brother Cain and that human blood first hit the ground and the blood cried out. The fall of man since Genesis 3 brought death into the world, and this has been very much the history of mankind from one particular perspective. And as I thought about this, and as I, obviously I, I'm studying a lot of history at the moment for some of my other research, and there's one thing that I'm continually shocked by, but because I'm so continually shocked, if you see what I mean, I, I'm not that shocked about it anymore, is the depth to which seemingly civilized people will stoop in their journey of conquest of their fellow man, particularly when they are placed in opposition to their man. And like I say, we see this. This is the history of the world in many respects, in one, in one sense, don't misunderstand me. But we see these different, these different things. We see the church doing you know, what the church has always done. We see the church living differently on this world, and we know this is what we're supposed to be doing. Okay, we're not to be like that. We're not to be like other nations. Remember we talked on Sunday, didn't we, about being holy, what it means to be a saint, someone who's set apart, someone who is different. And as we can see what the world does, we know that Jesus had a higher command for us, didn't he? He had a higher, higher calling for us. And this was the, the radical suggestion or command that we love our enemies in that way that only he can make possible through the supernatural endowment, through being a partaker of divine grace, through all the gifts that he gives us that we love. And in that way, we stand out as different to the rest of the world. We are not to fall into the tribalism that we see in the world. However, nor do we also accept a lot of the sort of secular utopian theories that are being pushed, that peace and these wonderful societies will ever be possible with man and man. And we see this sort of thing. If you're not aware of what I'm talking about, we, we see these sorts of visions, 
these visions for mankind, and I'm not saying it's wrong to dream and have uh, an idea of how you want to improve society, of course, I'm not talking about those, but sometimes it goes further than that, and we've seen it many times in history, that if we can just get to a certain stage, everything's going to be okay, man all of a sudden will be living in harmony with other man, if we can just maybe level the playing field, if we can sort of equalize the wealth discrepancies across the world, and all these different things that are linguistically adorned in the language of equality and justice that we have today, everything's going to be okay. And that is how this mantra has gone. It's not just our generation. that it, We've seen it pretty much in every generation. There's a version of these sorts of things. Sometimes it was couched in religious sentiment. Sometimes it was couched in humanistic sentiment, apart from religion. But one of the things we know, seeing with spiritual eyes, the factor that is common amongst all of them, it's always without Christ. And this is, this is the big issue. So we are not to fall into these things whereby restoring the world to some utopian vision that's not actually achievable without Christ is going to get there. Yes, we want to be good stewards of creation. Yes, we want to work for greater morality, for greater adherence to a biblical ethic in this world. But we do that through our obedience to Jesus Christ. Many people say today that we need the Great Reset. I'm sure you've heard that term floating around the internet many, many times. Now listen... All of these things, I'm just going to say nope, okay? They're not going to work. They, they are all ultimately doomed to failure, and that's being generous to them. Because what do they do? They deny everything we know about humanity. What we see here with David, man against his fellow man, what we see from the Garden of Eden, what we see from Cain and Abel, man is set against the other man. It's our fallen nature. It's our sinfulness. All of these utopian visions, they discount the existence of sin, the disciplines of psychology, in a secular sense, they do not analyze man correctly, and therefore any solutions that they come up with will be far from the truth. It's not saying they won't be right sometimes, don't misunderstand me, but I'm saying ultimately, if you're basing the foundation of the future on these things, you're doomed to failure. They also misunderstand the corroding effect of power on mankind. You know, they have that, you know, power corrupts. We know that. We've seen that. You don't have to look far around the world to see that. It also denies the existence of Satan, and this is a big one. You see, one of the main differences between us and the secular world is we have a worldview that is what we would call supernatural. The unseen realm, you could say, to quote Michael Heiser. We have that acknowledgement that the universe is not all that we see here, whereas if you, are, you don't hold that view, it is. And therefore, a being like Satan, who we know is a real being who has... You know, the intent to harm and destroy is not even factored into the equation. And again, if you ignore that from the situation, uh, you'll, you'll misdiagnose the problem. What you usually end up with, as we've seen, like I say many times in history, is that there is usually a few who make the rules and everyone else must obey. I don't have to, we don't even have to go more than sort of 40, 50 years back into history to see that. We can travel just on a plane across the globe. We can see that in many nations today. You look behind the curtain at events today, the things that are being pushed, the ideas that are being given to us, and they just come from a place that has rejected Christ, to put it quite frankly. Now, many people won't see it like that, but again, we have to peer behind the curtain with spiritual eyes. This is discernment. We use that discernment, the knowledge we gain from the Scriptures, from the Holy Spirit, and we discern, and because of that, we're able to tell what is evil and what is good. And that's a practice that we cultivate in our Christian walks, all the while holding up Christ's ethic to love. However, we also know that as believers, we do actually know the man at the very top. 
We can see if I could put it like that. And David expresses that confidence as he is surrounded by enemies at this time. And in verse 1, remember he says, set me securely on high, or it might say raise me above in some of your translations. And this is, again, it's a beautiful thought. As he is in his house watching the guards come with the intent to kill him, he says, Lord, securely set me on high, raise me up. He knows that God is the highest authority, the highest person, the most powerful being, and he's thrown himself into the arms of God. And he just says, set me securely on high. It's just a low, it's very quick, it's a very simple prayer, but it really does get to uh, the point that he gets to. Then notice at the, at the, the end of that section we just wrote, verse uh, 8. It says, you, O Lord, laugh at them, you scoff at all the nations. And again, do you remember Psalm 2? This is where we first did that, in our first, the second psalm that we studied, where it talked about the Lord looks down from the heavens and he laughs. And this is, you know, meant to arouse our sort of like, what's going on here? Because it's an expression of God's utter power and sovereignty and the effect of his created beings thinking that they can outsmart him and undo his purposes is really short. The effort is really nothing more than to invoke laughter from God to think that they can do that. It's, you know, it's quite an amazing thought when we think about it like that. It shows that God felt no intimidation from the wrangling, from the scheming of Satan or the nations doing his bidding. He sits in the heavens and he laughs. Let's read verses 9 to 15. It says, Because of his strength, I will watch for you. For God is my stronghold. My God in his loving kindness will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. Do not slay them or my people will forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. On account of the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be caught in their pride. And on account of curses and lies which they utter, destroy them in wrath, destroy them that they may be no more, that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth, Selah. They return at evening, they howl like a dog and they go around the city, they wander about for food and growl if they are not satisfied. What I like about these first few verses, 9 and 10, David here seems to give us four thoughts to light up the darkness. He says, God is his strength. And then he says, God is my stronghold. And then he says, my God in his mercy, or his loving kindness, some of your translations might have there. And then he says, in verse end of verse 11, God is our shield. Now these are four very specific meditations that David obviously had in his mind in this time of trouble. God is his strength. There is no one stronger. God is therefore his defense. There could be no better defense. Therefore, his mercy and his love are unmatched, and he is that shield to keep away the fiery darts of the evil one. Now, we can ask ourselves, who do we look to? I mean that today, in our times. Let's, let's, let's contextualize this. It is quite a kind of oppressive time at the moment, if you feel like that. It can be anyway. But we need to still continue to know where do we look. Where do we look? Now, I see a lot of people, and I have a lot of conversations if we are you know, in, imbibing everything that we see on the media, and I'm not even talking regardless of whether it's true or false, just the constant barrage of things that we see going on around the world, all the garbage that the world puts out, all the good stuff that the world puts out, I'm, you know, I'm not making a distinction necessarily, I'm just saying, I've seen it, when we, and I've experienced it myself over these last sort of few, few months. You just absorb all this stuff, but what's the result? 
You know, if you're on social media and you're reading things and you're, you're reading this, you're seeing the news, you're seeing this is making you angry, that's making you angry, this is making you depressed, that's bothering you, this you can't believe this is happening, how is this happening, and on and on and on these sorts of feelings go right now. And then what comes from that? You find yourself actually imitating that. You start getting angry at people. You start being depressed at people. You start thinking, what is happening in the world? And then you start being ungrateful for the blessings you have. You actually start being unable to see the blessings you have because your mind has been so clouded by all these other things that you've put into your soul. And sometimes it's not even that we're seeking them out. Just make no mistake, they are trying to get into your soul. And sometimes we have to actually stop and realize what is happening and I would say that if you find, if any of those sentiments ring true with you, particularly during this period, that that might be your warning, that you are actually being conformed to the spirit of the world rather than being conformed to Christ. And that is, you know, and I, I admit I've fallen into this trap recently just because for a lot of the things I do, I spend a lot of time reading and analysing the news and making analysis of it. And then sometimes I find myself pr pretty stressed out and pretty depressed for most of the day. And then I have to, to stop and think... You know, what am I doing? And I think David gives us that great example here. And if, if any of you feel like that, sometimes we just need to stop. Think, do what David did here. He made these particular attributes of God his meditation. And I would say he probably did that whilst he was looking at outside his window, seeing the world encroach on his life. And all that period, he looked to God as his strength. He meditated on God as his defense, as his stronghold, and he knew the mercy and loving kindness of God was everlasting, and thus God was his shield. And notice the way he phrases it, the way he uses the personal possessive pronoun. He says, my God, he's my shield, he will defend me. This was not just an abstract knowledge. He had not heard just by reading some book or by hearing it from some holy man that there was a God like this. He knew individually, personally, this was his God. It speaks of a man who is walking with the Lord, even in the ups and downs. This is what I'm getting at here. He was that man who had that confidence in his character, even if circumstances seemed to imply that uh, that confidence was misplaced. He knew that it wasn't, and he meditated on these attributes of God to the point that he even called out and mentioned them in prayer. And if you want an antidote, I would say, to, to, to getting down at this time, in, in some respects anyway, meditate on these things or find something else similar these are just four things there's a million things we could look at in the bible it's good medicine you know the proverbs say doesn't it the, the word of god is medicine for the soul that's in many ways that's literally what it is and then we see it, he asks some unusual things he asks in this portion of the psalm that the lord not deal with them too quickly and the point he's making out here is that if he just deals with them very very quickly and then they're gone they're forgotten he knows that nations and people have short memories uh, we talked about that on Sunday too. This is the thing. Sometimes he wants God's justice displayed to be there as a witness so that people can see. And we understand this. This is why we have different punishments for different crimes and different things that people can see. If you do this, this is going to happen. You know, we have that same principle operating in the world. And again, this is a, cosmo a cosmic example of that. He wants the testimony of God's justice to be that witness. And then verse 11 it says, do, uh, do not slay them, or my people will forget. Scatter them by your power. Now, if you didn't know, this is actually the inspiration for one of the verses of the British National Anthem. Now, those of you who have been in the UK for any number of years probably know the British National Anthem surfaces at a particular event every four years, and people start coming out in these white shirts. And even people who don't partake of the, the weekly festivities throughout the year 
start donning these things, and you see it on the TV at this time. It's usually a British tavern, let's say that, with a pint, and people drunkenly slurring the first line of the British National Anthem, God Save the Queen. And that's pretty much most people in this country, that's all they know of the British National Anthem. Uh, I had to look it up, I'm not going to lie, any of the other verses. Now, you know, you guys, you guys are much more patriotic with your, with, with your anthem over there, but we don't really know ours particularly well. Now, the second verse of the British National Anthem, now, that's how we think of it today. In times gone by, it was a much more sort of regal event, and there are still situations and occasions where it's done with orchestras, and it's, it's much more civilised than that. But the second verse reads like this. It says, Our Lord, our God, arise and scatter her enemies and make them fall. Confound their politics, frustrate their knavish tricks. On thee our hopes we fix. God save us all. And that's the second verse of the, of the UK National Anthem. And it draws from this psalm here that we've just read. And then he says, I will watch over you. Notice that, back in the psalm now, from the part, the part we've read. I will watch you, is verse 9, the end of it. Or it might say, wait for you. It's the same thought being expressed here. His confident knowledge of God's attributes give him that rest in the midst of trial and circumstances. He knows the one to be watching for is God, for God's deliverance, even at this time. And what does this waiting produce in him? And this is what I like, verse 16. But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. And yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning, for you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will praise, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. You see, think about this. He that begun by saying, Oh, my strength, I will wait upon thee, ends by saying, Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. And those two things are connected. Make no mistake about it. You know, they are connected. He waits because he understands and meditates on the strength and the character and the attributes of God. And then he waits, drawing on that strength, he's inspired to sing praises to God. In the future, there lies the certainty that all will end with thankfulness and praise. And as Christians, we believe that and we preach that and we know that and we hold that hope above all else. Because this is the hope that when we are with the Lord, when his kingdom comes onto this earth in that fully realized way, that this will be normal life, if we could put it like that. But until that time when we have to be watchful, we have to notice that there are evils and dangers around us, we can still have that glow in our hearts, that quiet assurance that we are his, and one day we will be partaking of that. And when we live like that, this is the thing. You know, they say that we could, in the midst of winter, we can bring summer. And what that expression is really getting at is that when we are living by hope with that future expectation of praise, that certainty that nothing can take away, and that certainty is linked to the resurrection. Remember, if the resurrection is true, the future is true. That's what God was proving when he did that sort of thing. If we live like that now in the present, when we're watching and waiting, knowing that there's singing and thankfulness in the future, the weird sort of paradox is that that will actually come back into your life and it will cause you to sing and praise right where you are in the present because the future and the present are linked in that sense. They're they're one thing, because we're so assured of what they are going to be because of Christ. You see how that works. It's 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 sort of a paradox, but that is the the point I believe David is getting at here. And for me, this is the, the real takeaway from the whole psalm. In the midst of trials 
We meditate on the character of God. We rest in the assurance that he is our shield, our protector, our strength. Even if we're up, even if we're down, we have that future praise and expectation. God is king. God is going to rule, and we will sing praises with him forever. And if we live in the hope of that, you will find that just infuses your life, and it causes and it bursts and abounds in your life at the present. And that's what I want us to take from that psalm. Let's just get straight into Psalm 60 that carry on from one another. Again, this is another lament psalm, so it's quite heavy duty material. But again, it's the word of God, uh, and it's a blessing to study it. As you can see, it has quite a long heading superscript. It says, For the choir director, according to Shushan Eduth, a miktam of David, to teach when he struggled with Aram Naharim and with Aram Zobar, and Joab returned and smote 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Um, what that basically means, this is just setting the historical setting. Uh, the backdrop for this is from 2 Samuel. It's talking about the wars that David fought with his, with his commander-in-chief Joab against Edom and all these enemies, and they had these many, many battles. That's the, sort of the backdrop that's going on here. And it would seem by the first part of this psalm, as we're going to read, he's reflecting on a time where those battles were not going so well. Uh, there were some defeats within those battles. So let's read verse, uh, let's just jump in and read verse 1. It says, O God, you have rejected us. You have broken us. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land quake. You have split it open. Heal its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people experience hardship. You have given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. You have given a banner to those who fear you, that it may, may be displayed because of truth, Selah. That your beloved may be delivered Save with your right hand and answer us. Let's just read the whole thing, in fact, and we'll comment afterwards. God has spoken in his holiness. I will exult, I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is also the helmet of my head. Judah is my scepter, Moab is my washbowl, over Edom I shall throw my shoe. Shout loud, O Philistia, because of me. Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have not you yourself, O God, rejected us? And you will not go forth with our enemies, with our armies, O God. O give us help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is in vain. Through God we shall do valiantly, and it is he who will tread down our adversaries. So that's the whole, the whole psalm there. As you can see in the first half of it, he was really uh, lamenting the times of defeat. And then he sort of changes pace and he knows that ultimately God in his holiness has given the people a banner and in his holiness he speaks and through that he is victorious. I really just want to focus on one particular part of this psalm here that jumped out as I was studying that. And that is this verse 4, this banner that he talks about. What is this banner? It's a fascinating subject and it's a fascinating history actually again to see how this verse has been used uh, through history. It's such a seemingly obscure psalm. Like, I mean, how often do you really see people quoting Psalm 60? Let's be honest, we don't see it that much, do we? And we don't read it devotionally that much. It, it's a fairly serious, heavy lament psalm. But this one verse, this one concept, this banner concept, is something we actually do find interwoven throughout the Bible, and it has surfaced at many different times. And we would say it is a... What does it say in the next verse? It's the next second part of the verse. It says, This banner was displayed because of truth. And this tells us something about this banner. You could quite literally say it was a banner of truth. That is what the verse literally says. And then as soon as the banner of truth is mentioned, we see God speak. This is his word. This banner is a prophetic symbol. The banner of truth is in fact 
God himself. Do you remember in the book of Exodus, the first time we find this term coming up, uh, when Amalek was attacking Israel? Moses and Joshua, they go up to the top of the mountain. Remember, he has to hold his hands up and they help him hold his hands up. If his hands are up, they win. When they go down, they lose. That's the story. This is how that is described at the end of Exodus 17. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial, recite it to Joshua. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. Listen to that phrase. He named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. This is Jehovah Nisi. It's often studied as one of the names of God. The Lord is my banner. He goes before us. He goes behind us. He gives us victory in those circumstances. Even in the midst of battle, the banner of the Lord is raised over us. We have that famous song, don't we? The banner over me is love. This, this is where you're going to see how this develops. Ultimately, we know if the Lord is the banner, the truth is that Jesus Christ himself is that banner. And we see this again prophetically in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 is one of those just unbelievable chapters in the book of Isaiah that gives you that glimpse into the future reign when Jesus the Messiah is actually ruling, the righteous branch of Jesse, the Davidic Messiah, the king. And it says this, In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. And it says the nations will rally to him. And his resting place will be glorious. And if you think of a banner, remember armies, this is a military setting, this psalm. He's talking about war. They would raise banners. Uh, we see the Roman army doing this. They had different banners for different battalions, for different legions, sometimes representing the empire, sometimes representing different kings. People would rally towards that banner. It was a rallying call. It was a place of, of community underneath. It was what you were standing for and what you were fighting for. Everyone knew in this sense, particularly in the ancient Near East and armies, you know, when you had that sort of warfare going on, what banners stood for. So it's quite a dramatic statement when he says the Lord has his own banner, everyone, and it's a banner that was given because it needed to be true and everyone rallies towards that. And then we see the fact that the Lord actually has a name where it says the Lord is my banner. And then we see in this prophecy of Isaiah that the future messianic king is actually going to be the one who stands in Jerusalem as a banner to all the people and all the nations will gather to him. You see this theme being, I just, I just love the way these themes like progress throughout the whole of scripture. This is talking about future reign, but obviously we can still apply this and there's many ways that this is actually uh, true, not just in application, in reality for the church of Christ today because he is that banner. When Christ is preached, the banner is raised and his people gather round it and follow it. All true Christians are an army in that sense, gathered under the same banner to fight against the common enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is what that banner is talking about. And we see the cross, don't we, as a symbol, if we could say the symbol of that banner in this time, because the Lord has ascended at this present time. We have his spirit with us now, but we have the cross is often used as a symbol of our faith. And this is, again, we get this from the Bible. Do you remember in uh, the Gospel of John, when Jesus said, if I am lifted up from the earth, speaking about his time on the cross, he's going to draw people to himself. And thus the cross becomes that symbol, that kind of banner, the rallying point that gives new hope and motivates loyal service. And remember, the cross is a demonstration of God's love for us, isn't it? And again, we have that banner over us, is love. This is what we're getting at here. We preach Christ and we preach Christ crucified, says Paul. That is the Christian's banner. There's an old hymn that comes from this verse in this psalm. It's called The Banner of the Cross by Daniel Webster. Let me read to you a couple of verses. It says, there's a royal banner given for display, 
to the soldiers of the king as an ensign we lift it today while as ransom ones we sing marching on marching on for christ count everything but loss and to crown him king we'll toil and sing underneath the banner of the cross and i love that concept underneath the banner of the cross do you remember how many times we've seen in the psalms the phrase and he will shelter you underneath his wings and we've just seen david meditate on the strength of god the shield of god the protection of god the mercies of god all of these things are encapsulated by this banner by this symbol and that is what the cross should invoke in us all of these things now we know people misuse the cross and we know i know all of that stuff but to us who love god we look at the cross and we see what Christ did for us and it invokes all of these feelings, all of these confidences in us and we know these attributes of God are true. Now, if Christ is the, is the banner, it's not incorrect to say that the word is also his banner because Christ is the word incarnate. We understand that from the Gospel of John. If we are to keep the banner of truth flying, that I believe is one of our... If we are, let's say, use the military motif that's being used here, an army of Christ we are to actually hold that banner up what is the way we do that it's by holding up the word of god in society because it is the light this is the whole expression it's a light to the world and people will be drawn to the light the word of god being a light this is the same concept as a banner being held up and people drawing themselves to it and we need to fly that banner high if we are to do that we need to stay close to his word what does the psalm say? It says, uh, it says, God has spoken in his holiness. God's word is holy and it is a living word. And we neglect it at our peril and we argue with it at our own peril and we, we just ignore it at our own peril. Yet the banner, in all reality, because it is God's word, it attracts the enemies of God in that sense too, who in this present moment have the ability to try and attack it, even if we know in the future this will, not be the, this will not be the case. And I want to have a little look now at just in the last section of this teaching about the battle against the word of God. Let me read you a quote by a man named Horatius Bonar. And this, so this is what, over 150 years ago this man was writing, and it's just so current for today too. He says, Man is now thinking out a Bible for himself, framing a religion in harmony with the development of liberal thought, constructing a worship on the principles of taste and culture, Shaping a God to suit the expanding aspirations of the age. Remember, this is a long time ago. It's different things in his head than probably in our head now. The extent of the mischief no one can calculate. A soul without faith, a church without faith, a nation without faith, a world without faith. What is to be their future? What is their present? When faith goes, all good things go. When unbelief comes in, all evil things follow. I think that's just a wonderful quote, um, kind of highlighting the importance of this subject. Understanding this battle, the battle against the word of God, is key to understanding history, world history and biblical history. It's key to understanding why these ancient nations kept attacking Israel. Because it wasn't just that Israel or the Jewish people had anything that was really bad about them or in that particular anthropological sense, it was much more spiritual than that. The unique difference in Israel lay not in themselves but in the revelation that they received from God. Remember 2 Samuel, he said this in 2 Samuel 32, the prophets, he said, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me and his word is on my tongue. Israel had the prophets, they had the word of God, they had the revelation. This is why the nations attacked them. Psalm 147, he shows his word to Israel, his statutes and judgments unto Jacob. He has not dealt so with any other nation in that time. What advantage has the Jew, the Apostle Paul asks? Remember it says, chiefly, 
To him was committed the oracles of God, the word of God. At its heart, the assault on Israel was war on the word of God. We move into the New Testament period, and even the early church for the 300 years that we saw persecution of Christians. John, on the Isle of Patmos, he writes, it was for the word of God that they suffered. They have kept the word of my testimony, he said in Revelation 3, verse 8. And in Revelation 6, he says, they were put to death, they were slain for the word of God. You see, this is the principle that we have here, the word of God. The same thing is repeated through the Reformation. Tyndale was burned in 1536 because he stood on the word of God. When the Puritan revival happened and the Catholics rose up against that and people were being killed for the word of God. At different times in history, different challenges have come up against the word of God. In the 18th century, it was a different attack. This time it came from the form of philosophy. It was the Enlightenment thinkers, the rationalism, the people who denied the supernatural, who ridiculed the worldview of the Bible and sought to expel it from the academy. In the 19th century, we saw the scientific, the Darwinian revolution that posited just a completely uh, different view of anthropology than we find in the Bible. The authenticity of the Torah was denied. These German higher critical theories that didn't consider the Bible to be the word of God, started becoming popular. And now, in the 21st century, the very concept of truth itself is seemingly up for grabs and is in the eye of the beholder. And what does that say for the banner of truth? If we are supposed to be lifting that banner of truth high, that is what we do, then we must have a very definite understanding of what truth, thy word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. That's our banner. We cannot let that go. And that is why we see this battle going on. It's the word of God. Because what is special about the word of God? Yes, it's the living word of God. We know that. You remember when Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, the Bible, that is able to give you the wisdom to salvation. It's because the Bible diagnoses man, it diagnoses God, and it gives the solution for salvation. That's why the nations rage against God. I want to share with you one illustration of something else from this verse, and then we'll finish. Just to show, how this, show you how this verse has been used through history. How many of you have heard of the Banner of Truth ministry? You heard of that? Yeah, a few hands going up, a lot of you. So they're, they're very well known for producing Puritan books and reform books, and probably the most well-known person is, is Martin Lloyd-Jones's uh, sermons that they print. They have, a, And again, the banner of truth. I hope you see where I'm going with this. But they have a fascinating story. I'll tell you a little bit about it. So in the 50s, I believe, it, it, this, this goes back to, a minister was reading Charles Spurgeon's commentary on Psalm 60 that we've just read. And on verse 4, he read this comment. Spurgeon wrote, So far gone was Israel that only God's interposition could preserve it from utter destruction. How often have we seen churches in this condition and how suitable is prayer is the prayer before us in which the extremity of the need is used as an argument for help. For truth's sake, and because the true God is on our side, let us in these days of warfare emulate the warriors of Israel and unfurl our banner to the breeze with confident joy. In 1955 in Oxford, England, whilst reading these verses, two ministers particularly were impacted by the, the words of Psalm 60 verse 4, and they said that this speaks directly to the condition of the church in Great Britain at this time. One of those men was named Ian Murray. If you know Ian Murray, he's written like a million books, and he, well, we'll get into his story a little bit. And he prayed on that verse, and he, he knew that the Lord was calling him to do something. All the famous places where Cranmer and Ridley, the word of God, were killed, where George Whitfield was prepared for his revivalistic meetings and things like that. And they realized that the memory of these men 
and memory of many saints gone by in church history was largely forgotten. And it was forgotten because generally it was locked away in little-known and unattainable out-of-print records and books. That was the idea. And in an attempt to address this situation, they wanted to start something to get the truth out to people. So they started a magazine and they called it, based on this verse, The Banner of Truth. They didn't know whether it was going to have more than one edition or two. And over 55 years later, they've had an edition every single month and they're still producing many, many books. They desired to help the church rediscover old truths. But the hopes and plans were dashed when they realized how expensive publishing actually was. And there's a reason why these things went out of print. It cost a lot of money to publish books back then. So they didn't quite know what to do. And at this stage, this was the famous period in British history where Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching through the Book of Romans every Friday night. It became a very famous thing. It took him 13 years to get through the Book of Romans. It's Friday night, Bible studies. You can get those sermons now. It's like a 14-volume commentary published by the Banner of Truth, incidentally. He was preaching there um, through the Book of Romans. And he met this man, um, and he said, why don't you come and serve with me? And uh, Ian here, he went and he served with Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel in the 50s. And Martin Lloyd-Jones showed a huge interest in this vision he had for the Banner of Truth. And he encouraged people and they gave and they produced that second edition there. And then Ian Murray uh, worked with Dr. Lloyd-Jones for a while. And to the point that Martin Lloyd-Jones said to him, why don't you take the Wednesday evening Bible class? And he said, fine, that's fine. And then apparently a week before he was going to teach... Martin Lloyd-Jones said to him, in fact, I don't want you to teach the Bible, I want you to teach church history. And he said, that's fine, I've never taught church history, but I have a lot of things I could share. And he did this. And he started teaching from these old Puritan books, from these lost books of history, these out-of-print books. And there was one man in the audience, a very wealthy businessman from London, who came up to him afterwards and said, where are you getting this stuff from? Why has no one heard this? Why has this truth been lost, basically? And he quite simply said, it's, it's locked away in, in out-of-print books and there's no way to get them um, back in print. And he said, right, okay, tell me how much it will cost. And he gave them the money and they printed their first books. And those books were available on the first Friday night Bible study in Westminster Chapel after Christmas at the promotion of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. They sold them out and it's pretty much been the same ever since. They are now a worldwide international ministry. They have produced hundreds and millions of books that have gone worldwide. They produce and print all of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' written work from Westminster Chapel, which are just something that goes on and on, the gift that keeps on giving in that respect. And they are still known as the Banner of Truth. And they have conferences, and they're in every well, all over the world now. And why do I share this story? Because I love church history, yes, but also because I just find it encouraging. This was two pretty much no, nobody, not well-known ministers at this time, just reading the Word of God and reading an old commentary and feeling that this, spoke, this speaks to us. This, it's an old book, but it was speaking to them. God used the Word of God, and he inspired them to hold up that banner. They wanted to get the truth back into people's hands, and then... We could say over the 50 years, the rest is history. God has done that. And I think for me, that's just a great encouragement that it doesn't matter where we are, particularly in history, we're still called to hold that banner high. God is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can still have just as much confidence in his attributes, and we do not need to worry about some of these other things. Focus on lifting that banner high. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. 
to help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com theology and apologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.